My topic is a learned obedience. A learned obedience. And I'm going to talk to you mothers who have small children to begin with, because we all know that good mothers and good fathers want their children to be obedient. You don't want to live in a house full of chaos. And I had the very great privilege of growing up in a home where things were beautifully ordered. There were six in our family. I was number two. I have four brothers and one sister. And we look back with great gratitude. We just had a family reunion this past summer. And when the six of us get together, we marvel at the wonderful wisdom that the Lord gave to our parents And I want to pass on to you one simple little vignette of what to do when your child becomes crawling age. Now, you can sort of live through the first eight months because he's not climbing in and out of the crib. When he gets to the point where he is going to be crawling around, how are you going to train this child? It has to be a learned obedience on the child's part and, don't forget, on the mother's part. You have to learn to be obedient to God in raising your children. But there are four simple principles. Number one, when that little child becomes, let's say, a crawler, the first thing he's going to do is make a beeline for the coffee table where there's a beautiful vase or something, or he's going to pull the whole tablecloth off the dining room table, or he's going to do something like that right away because as soon as he's given the privilege of crawling around on his own, he's just going to grab at all sorts of things. Now, what are you going to do about that? It's worth taking off a whole morning to train this learned obedience. If it takes you the whole morning, just think it'll save you endless trials and tribulations for the rest of that year. Number one, establish eye contact. Speak the child's name. Jeremy, and Jeremy, who's crawling very fast toward the coffee table or something, is undoubtedly going to turn around and look at you with a very mischievous look in his eye. But you've spoken his name quietly in a normal tone of voice. You're not screaming at him. But you establish eye contact and you name him. And then you issue one simple command. No. When he's going for that thing on the coffee table. No. And you know, an eight-month-old baby knows exactly what that means. And don't you imagine for a moment that he's not smart enough to figure it out. And so you say no, and then the fourth thing is, do not repeat. Now, when you start saying, when you start counting from one to ten, that's just training the child in delayed obedience, which is stupid, just plain stupid. Don't give them countdowns. What I'm giving you is the simplest way of making your home peaceful one. Number one, eye contact. Number two, speak his name. Number three, issue a command and don't repeat. Now, when I say don't repeat, of course, on that first day, 
you're going to have to repeat over and over again. It may take you an hour and a half or two hours. Let the boy, let the child know. Now, I had experience with only one child of my own because my daughter Valerie was 10 months old when her father was killed. And Jim and I were sitting in our little living room in our jungle home the day that Valerie learned to crawl. And we had very few valuable things in that jungle house, but the most valuable things that we had were our books. And we did not want that child pulling books out of the bookcase and ruining them. And so we were sitting on the sofa, and this little mischievous child was making a beeline for the bookcase, and she was looking over her shoulder with a very defiant look in her eye, eye, and her father said, Valerie, he spoke her name, she turned around, and eye contact was established, and he said, no. And with the most mischievous look in her eyes. She made a beeline for that bookcase. She pulled a book out of the bookcase, tore a page before we had a chance to stop her. And guess what? She got a spanking. But you know, she never did that again because we started early enough. She got a good hard spanking from her father. As far as I can remember, that's the only spanking she ever got from him because he died a couple months later. Now, a lot of you are not mothers of children, or some of you are mothers and your, your children are long since grown, but I trust that there will be some who will find that this was a good lesson in a learned obedience. But I want to read to you from Hebrews 5, verses 7 to 10. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears, to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Have you pondered much on the fact that Jesus Christ himself, the Lord of the universe, had to learn obedience from the things which he suffered. Can we imagine that we will be exempt from having to learn obedience? Exempt from suffering? Of course not. Now, for those of you who are note takers, and it's always very encouraging to a speaker to see somebody very earnestly scribbling away. Now, for all I know, you're writing your Christmas cards <laughs> until you get bored or you're writing a letter to somebody else. But anyway, if, you're, if you really want to take down a few points, I'm going to give you four points under this heading of a learned obedience. Number one is reverent submission which means acceptance of the one who is in charge. If you and I are going to learn obedience, as Jesus had to learn it, then we must submit with reverence, recognizing who it is who is going to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. And I don't think you would have come here tonight if you were not interested in being shaped to the likeness of Jesus. I think we all want to be 
like Jesus. I do, and here I am, an old woman, and I've had every possible advantage from childhood on up, and yet still I'm working on it. Still I'm sometimes recalcitrant, but I do want to be like Jesus. Acceptance of the one who is in charge. Who's in charge? He's got the whole world in his hands, hasn't he? He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. And he wants us to trust him and to submit ourselves. Now, the word reverence, you may not spring to your lips, that word, the meaning of it, but it means profound respect mingled with love and awe. If the Lord Jesus were to walk onto this platform, we would all be awed to the point of being stunned. But reverence is profound respect mingled with love and awe. And if you are faithful in training your children, your children are going to love you. And they are going to look at you with a certain amount of awe, not by any means all the time. But I I can remember a certain amount of awe when my father came home from work in the evening. He was a very tall man, very thin, very quiet, and he only had one eye because of a childhood disobedience. You can imagine how many times we heard that story. His father had told him that he could not have firecrackers because they're dangerous. And so until my father was 12 years old, he complied with that. But by the time he got to be 12, he just decided that he was going to have those firecrackers anyway. And so he got up early in the morning, went with a buddy, and they fired off some dynamite caps. And one of those pieces went into his left eye, and he was blinded in his left eye for life. And the doctor said if he'd gotten to the hospital one hour later, he would have been totally blind. So we looked at him with a certain amount of awe. Submission. Reverence means submission. To surrender to the power and the will and the authority of someone else. And all of us know what it means to have to submit to the authority, for example, of your teachers in school, of the traffic laws, of the IRS, And if any of you are married to military people or you yourself have been in the military, you know what military discipline is like. Reverent submission in the church, in the workplace, there are always opportunities to submit. Now, a British theologian by the name of P.T. Forsyth said, subordination is not inferiority. It is divine. The principle has its roots in the very cohesion of the eternal trinity. And the word cohesion means to be brought together, stuck together almost. The cohesion of the eternal trinity. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Those are three persons in one. It's a mystery that we can't really fathom. But the principle of subordination finds its roots in the cohesion of the eternal trinity. Now, to recognize no lord or master is satanic. It is anarchy. Forsyth says, I insist on the Christian principle drawn from the very nature of God and essential to the masculinity and femininity which he has made. 
without the spirit of subordination, there is no true piety, no manly nobility, and no womanly charm. Without the spirit of subordination, there is no womanly charm. And we live in a world that's not encouraging us to practice womanly charm. But as Christian women, we have a totally different view of things, don't we? We want to be the kind of women that Jesus would want us to be. True inferiority, says Forsyth, is insubordination, and the spirit which which tolerates no authority and rebels against all control. And we see illustrations of that every day in the newspapers, don't we? All sorts of occasions where people tolerate no authority and rebel against all control. Now, under this reverent submission thing, I just thought I'd give you a little vignette when I was working with a a certain tribe in the the eastern jungle of Ecuador called Aucas, A-U-C-A. These were the people who had killed my husband, Jim, back in 1956. And I had the privilege of going in and living with those people. And it was amazing to me to see how clearly and how simply and how gladly those primitive, naked people accepted their assigned roles. The women knew what women were supposed to do. They... The men hunted and built, ho- and built houses and cut down trees, and the women planted and wove uh, bags and things that they needed for carrying their produce, and they made pottery. And there was no competition between the men and the women. The men had their jobs as men, the women had their jobs as women, and everything worked together beautifully in harmony. And, of course, I was a freak in their midst because I didn't know how to make pots and weave things, let alone plant manioc, which was the staple food. But these people had never heard of competition. There was no pulling and hauling and jealousy over who did what. And they had certainly never heard the word equality. And I'm so glad that we women don't have to worry about demanding equality with men. God, in his mercy, in his wisdom, has made us subordinate. So the men are the ones that are going to have to answer to God, and you and I only have to answer to that fallible human being. A learned obedience. And I think for most of us women, it does take learning, you know, because we've been sold a bill of goods. The world has been telling us, you have a right to do whatever you want to do, and we women are all equal with the men, and we know that's rubbish. Absolute rubbish. So that was point number one for you note takers. Now we're on point number two. Consider others better than yourselves. Have you learned that obedience? Considering others better than yourselves? Now this is not an Elizabeth Elliot idea. I got it out of Philippians 2, 3. Back in the days when the women's movement was making women very angry and very determined that they were going to show the men how they were supposed to behave and the women were going to do everything that men could do. And my brother Tom happened to be a professor in a college at that time. 
And one day he happened to just about be going through a door when there was a female, I can hardly call her a lady or a girl, but she was dressed as much as possible like a man. And my brother, being the kind of a man he is, simply opened the door for this girl who was just about to go through. And she swung around and she said, did you do that because I'm a lady? He said, no, I did it because I'm a gentleman. (laughs) Well, I don't think she liked that. But he was considering others better than himself, a very simple little ordinary down-to-earth illustration. The Bible says you're to consider others better than yourselves. It is a learned obedience. And we are to do this with humility. A famous Viennese psychiatrist by the name of Viktor Frankl made the observation when he was in a prison camp during World War II, concentration camp. He tells in his book called Man's Search for Meaning that they received one piece of bread per week. They had watery soup seven days a week, but on Fridays they had the soup and a piece of bread. And he said it was very interesting to see that there would always be a very few people in that concentration camp who would take that piece of bread and walk around trying to find somebody that was worse off than they were. And they would give them that piece of bread. Considering others better than themselves. And amazingly, the longevity or the long, longer life of the people in that concentration camp were the people who shared with somebody else rather than feeling as though I've got to have what I've got to have and it doesn't make any difference what happens to this guy. And so they found, surprisingly, that they survived because they had considered someone else better than themselves. I think of the gentleness of the oldest man in that tribe that I was living with. His name was Gikita, a tall, skinny man who was a great hunter and very kind to my daughter and me. He built a house for us. He fixed the thatched roof when it began to leak. He brought wood for our fire. He would usually give us a piece of meat when he came back from the hunt, if he had had anything. And he was very sweet with my little daughter, who was then three years old. And he would very often offer her a monkey leg, which she absolutely loved. And he would mend the thatch in my roof. And I remember one time when he came back from the hunt, he had been working all day long. They started out usually at 5 o'clock in the morning. They got back about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, all day long, running through the jungle with their blowguns, hoping that they would be able to come back with some food for their families. And with some regularity, they didn't always come back with something. They might have worked 12 12 hours and yet came back with nothing. And on one occasion, he came back, this man, Kikita, came back with one little squirrel. And he gave it to my daughter, Valerie. Now, he had a whole slew of children of his own. And, of course, they stood there just dying to have a piece of that monkey, of that squirrel. And I think Valerie offered them some of it. But 
I think of it as one of those illustrations. They didn't know the scriptures. They didn't know what Paul says in Philippians 2, 3. Consider others better than yourselves. But just the survival required a learned obedience. They had to do these things if they were going to survive. And in humility, they took on a foreign liability. And you're looking at the foreign liability. I was nothing but a liability to those people. I couldn't do anything that was useful to them. They didn't know why I was there. They thought I had left my country because I was trying to find a nice place to live. And the jungle was a nice place to live. It wasn't quite as nice as where I did live, but these were some of the things which were painful for me to have to go in and live with people for whom I could do nothing, really, because I was so stupid in their eyes. They couldn't imagine why I walked around all the time with a book like this. They didn't know what it was, but they smelled it. And they said, that's made of an animal, isn't it? And I said, yes. And then when they opened it up, they smelled it again. And they said, and that's made of wood, isn't it? Of course, they were exactly right. They had very keen smellers. So they recognized the cow's smell, and not that they had ever seen cows before, but they knew it was an animal. And the wood, of course, they knew came from the trees. Consider others better than yourselves. Number three, look to the interests of others. Look to the interests of others. Philippians 2.4 says, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that's a verse that should help us to get out of our pity parties and out of ourselves and reach out to somebody else. And it has been my experience more than once, many times I would say, that the person who has been the greatest help to me has been someone who has been through deep waters herself. I would say that the people who have had the deepest influence in my spiritual life are, without exception, people who have suffered. And so I've learned that they looked at the interest of me, and I am supposed to also look for the interests of others. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that is certainly a principle that ought to help us get out of ourselves. Our poor little sad, sweet, stinking selves, as my Bible's teacher used to say. I went to a Bible school up in northern Canada, not northern exactly, but western Canada, and L, Mr. L. E. Maxwell was the principal of that school. And I remember one, one of our Tuesday night meetings where we were allowed to get up to the microphone and tell something that the Lord had done for us during that week. And very often, instead of giving encouraging testimonies, kids would get up and talk about the most ridiculous little things that they had done wrong, which we really didn't need to know about. They could have confessed it to the Lord, but they took the time of all these 1,600 students to tell about, well, I touched the volleyball in, when we were doing our, our playing, and 
the referee didn't see me, and so now I need to confess that I had broken the rules and all, all sorts of ridiculous little things that we really didn't need to hear about. We could have just left them with the Lord. And at the end of one of those long sessions, dear Mr. Maxwell got up and he said, Oh, Lord, deliver us from our sad, sweet, stinking selves. <laughs> he was a wonderful man. But look to the interests of others. When my daughter and I and Rachel Saint, the sister of another one of the five men who had been killed, when we first arrived in this out-of-the-way place in the middle of nowhere in the jungle of Ecuador, a place to which no civilization had ever reached, we realized immediately that we were a liability to these people. We were nothing but a liability. And in their great generosity, in their great ignorance of not having any idea who these strange-looking people were, and I was a good six or eight inches taller than most of the men, let alone the women. The women came up to maybe my elbow or so. And they'd never seen anything with blue eyes. They'd never seen anything with blonde hair. They'd never seen anything with white skin. But they were sweet to us. They were nice to us. And this same man, whose name I gave you a few minutes ago, Gikita, he built a house. He heard, he had word that there was this foreigner coming in got this word in advance, and he was told that it was a very tall foreigner, and so he built a house, are you ready for this, about 30 feet high. (laughs) It was an awful letdown to him when he saw me, (laughs) but he very graciously and happily went ahead and tore that house to pieces and built me a house which was more to my taste. And he provided the house for Valerie and me. Now, what kind of a house was it? Six poles with a thatched roof. No floor, no walls, no doors, no windows, no furniture. But I hung my hammock between two of the six poles, and Valerie slept on a slab of bamboo partly under my hammock, and I had the fire on the other side. And I had all my worldly goods hanging up in an Indian carrying net under the thatched roof because that was the only place where it wouldn't be rained on. Everything else, the rain could come right straight through the house and everything would be soaked, but things that were way up under the roof didn't get soaked. And I had one change of clothing besides what I had on. I wore the Quechua Indian dress, which was a straight skirt, very similar to a blue denim skirt, and a checked gingham blouse very different from the Alka costume, which was nothing but a string. I don't mean a G-string, I mean a string. Um, now you're all picturing it, aren't you? They, they had a string around their hips, and sometimes they would put a string around their arm, and if they were want, wanting to be very dressed up, they would put a string around their thigh. But that was it. I mean, that was the way Alka's dressed, and that was enough for them. But they looked to the interest of me, knowing nothing about Philippians 2.4, but they had this sort of ingrown understanding that you're supposed to be nice to people. Now, mind you, these were the people who killed. Of course, my question was, 
Why did you kill them? They said, we thought they were coming to eat us. Perfectly good reason. They had to protect their children and their wives. Amy Carmichael tells a story which fits under this heading, Look to the Interests of Others. A beautiful story about a Syrian Christian in southern India who was invited to preach in a nearby village. The message of holiness was not wanted. The people said, we go to church, we give money, that is enough. Now this man, this Syrian Christian, was the son of a very wealthy family, and he was pricked to the heart by the Holy Spirit and was thoroughly changed. And Amy Carmichael says, And as a flame burns and shines, so did he burn, and so did he shine. But one day, a man there in the village stole this Christian's camel eye. Now, a camel eye was a device for drawing water, and of course a very necessary device that everybody had to have. But this man, son of a wealthy family, decided to steal this Christian's camel eye. The Christian said nothing, looking to the interests of others. His enemy, perceiving his gentleness, took advantage and demanded the loan of his bulls and his plow. And the Christian said, take not only the bulls and the plow, but food for the bulls. This melted the heart of the other. And he fell down at his feet and asked for forgiveness and was led to the Lord. A beautiful illustration of looking to the interests of others. It was a very necessary piece of equipment, that camel eye. But the Christian gave it all. A learned obedience. Number four now. Choose your attitude. If you're going to learn obedience, you're going to have to choose your attitude. And I would recommend again that you who are raising little children or middle-aged children or grown-up children, if you're, they're still at home, remind them now and again that it is entirely possible to choose your attitude. And I think we women need that lesson over and over again because we're so prone to feeling sorry for ourselves and wanting to sink into a pity party and wanting to know, I don't know why the Lord doesn't do something about what so-and-so is doing to me. But I can give you the scriptural answer. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, although co-equal and consubstantial, which means made in the same kind, made in the same nature, made in the same substance, and co-eternal. This is Jesus we're talking about. Co-equal, consubstantial, co-eternal. That's the way in which Jesus related to the Trinity, his Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Co-equal, consubstantial, co-eternal. Big theological words. But words that show us that they were the Lord of the universe, they being these three persons of the Trinity. 
But Jesus, when he was here on earth, made himself nothing. Can we do that? Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And let us not suppose that we will be exempt from suffering if we're going to learn obedience. It's required of all of us. Now, to be enabled to choose an attitude like that requires self-abandonment, self-abnegation, just the giving up, the total Glad giving up of yourself. That's what it takes. A wholehearted letting go. Lord, here I am, all of me for you forever. Do anything you want with me. And what if the Lord actually takes you up on that? What if he starts doing just exactly what you asked him to do and you look up and say, Lord, what are you doing to me? And he says, isn't it what you asked? Don't you want me to conform you into my image? I trust that every one of us here tonight wants to be conformed to the image of Christ. He made himself nothing. And the Bible says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A Jewish woman by the name of Edith Stein became a Christian and was taken into concentration camp in Auschwitz in August of 1942. And Edith Stein wrote this, Whatever did not fit in with my plan did lie within the plan of God. I think all of us can identify with that. We have our own plans. We have ideas about what we would like God to do. And we find out eventually that this particular thing that we thought fit in with our plans did not lie within the plan of God. And I can look back over my more than 70 years and realize How many times I want to thank God for saying no. The things that I wanted him to do and beat on his door, hoping that he would do them for me. And for some reason he said no, and I can look back sometimes and see why. But of course we don't need to know why. We just need to know that he loves us with an everlasting love. And so Edith Stein says, whatever did not fit in with my plan did lie within the plan of God. She's referring to going into concentration camp. I have an ever deeper and firmer belief that nothing is merely an accident. When seen in the light of God, that my whole life down to the smallest details has been marked out for me in the plan of God, the plan of divine providence, and has a completely coherent meaning in God's all-seeing eyes. And so I am beginning to rejoice 
in the light of glory wherein this meaning will be unveiled to me. And she was killed in concentration camp. Nothing, ladies, is merely an accident. The Lord is teaching us in all kinds of ways to learn obedience. To teach a little baby, a crawler, to understand no. It's a learned obedience. Be faithful in carrying through the corrections. It will be not only the child who learns, but the mother and the father. I think most of you who have had children, you would identify with that. You learn a great deal by being a mother or a father. And the Lord arranged things that way, didn't he? For our glory and for our joy. A word to parents of soon-to-be teenagers. You know, probably you don't know that there was no such word as teenage or teenagers until President Roosevelt coined that word. And everything fell apart after that. Because teenagers were given license to just be absolutely wild and out of control. And one time when my daughter was about 11 years old, one of my friends was talking to me about her children and she turned to me, she asked me, she said, well, how would you describe your relationship with your daughter? And it was a a new question to me and I had to think for a few minutes and I said, well, as far as I know, it's, it's just practically a perfect relationship. She's been nothing but a joy to me. This woman just rolled her eyes and said, oh, just just wait till she's a teenager. Well, I'm still waiting. She's 45 now. But teenagers were given license to just kick over the traces, do anything they wanted to do, and you just have to put up with it and try to get through until they're 19 or 20 years old because of this word. And now I hear that there's another word that somebody has recently coined, tween-agers. Between 10 and 13, they're tween-agers. And so what kind of license are you going to give them? These children, by the time they've reached the age of 12, they know what the rules of the house are. They know that perfectly well. And when Jesus was 12 years old, remember... His parents didn't find him in the company when they were leaving Jerusalem. They went for three days thinking that he was in the retinue. Must have been quite a crowd traveling. Suddenly they realized that Jesus wasn't there. They went all the way back to Jerusalem. They sought him sorrowing. And his mother chided him. Do you remember what he said? Do you remember where they found him? He was absolutely confounding the teachers of the law there in that temple. And he looked at his mother and he said, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And I think that that is a crucial position, a crucial point that mothers and fathers recognize and let the child know that they recognize that he is now answerable to God. And you know that your children know the rules of the home long before they get to be 12. They know the rules. When they get to be 12, are you going to allow them to just go wild? Or are you going to prepare them from 10 to 11 to 12 and show them you are going to be treated in this home 
like an adult. Oh, Elizabeth Elliot, she's been giving us stuff that I never even heard of in my life. I mean, whoever, you know, I can just imagine some of the things that you're going to be thinking. But I'm real serious about that. I really think that children should be taught to take adult responsibility as soon as they reach the age of 12. Requirements of adults. Jesus was put, was about his father's business. Now I've told you a little bit about my mother and the way she disciplined us. I've told you the four steps. Eye contact, speak the name quietly, say no, and do not repeat. I've talked to you about ALCA responsibilities, men who have to build houses and women who have to catch fish with their hands. I've told you about my brother Tom, who said I did it because I'm a gentleman. Victor Frankl, who discovered people who had that one piece of bread, gave it away. The Syrian Christian, who had his camel eye stolen. Edith Stein, who said whatever did not fit in with my plan, fit in with the plan of God. And so I ask you tonight, have you learned anything here? Hebrews 2, 8 and 9. I want to leave you with these words. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Remember that verse that says he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So the next time you're strongly tempted to wonder, why is God doing this to me? Don't you have an answer? Here it is in black and white. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the one who holds the stars, the one who created the animals, the whales, the clams, the tiny little hummingbird. He surrendered himself to his father. And he was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, for you and me, in order that we might learn obedience. May God give us grace to remember these things, to ask the Lord to show us in what way he wants to apply the principles that I've been dishing out to you tonight. May God give you grace. Thank you.